This is a Founding Media podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Great Society, a podcast about people who are working to elevate the voices of others. I'm your host, Constance Dykusen. My guests today are Virginia Cumberbatch and Megan Harding, founders of Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. We had a lot of fun talking about not letting fear keep you from getting started and social impact as side hustle. Here's my conversation with Virginia and Megan. everyone. Welcome to Great Society. I'm your host, Constance Dykusen. I'm here today with Virginia Cumberbatch and Megan Harding of Rosa Rebellion. Thanks, ladies, for coming. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. We're excited. Um, I wanted to start at the beginning. How did you two meet? Oh, gosh. It's, <laughs> it's a really interesting story, kind of, I guess. We have a mutual best friend, um, and she moved. So she would say that everything that we've accomplished is because of her. So shout out to Tamara. Thank you, Tamara. And so me and Virginia would see each other a lot in, like, different community circles, and um, a lot of Tamara's things would overlap. So we would um, see each other there. But when she moved, um, we really started to, like, hang out and um, get together to talk about shared ideas and shared passions and just work and Tamara says it's because she left such a big void um, <laughs> in our life that we had to fill it with each and, other and none of this would have happened without her. And just to provide <laughs> a little bit more context, we had a launch event at South by last um, in March of 2019 and um, she insisted that that be a part of our remarks that, <laughs> yes. uh, without her leaving us part uh, basically um, desperate and desiccated, you know, that um, we wouldn't have found each other and been able to create this <laughs> space together. Um, how did you two know that you were kind of safe people to go and talk to about ideas and things like that? Because I feel like I have friends that I, you know, oh, there are yeah. people I hang out with and then I have friends that are kind of like my great society friends where like I get yeah. together and I talk about ideas and work and stuff like that. How did y'all know that you were looking at kind of a kindred spirit in that way? That's a good question because I think there's this ongoing sort of anxiety and fear because information moves so quickly and mm-hmm. even if we don't want it to be, there feels a little bit like a competitive spirit around mm-hmm. um, generating ideas, creating spaces, yeah. particularly with um, social media, we're like, oh, I thought I, you know, someone else has already <laughs> created that. Um, so I think um, identifying people um, in your community that you know that you can go to to um, share ideas, get feedback, and people that you feel really be invested in you, right, is important. Um, I think I knew that about Megan simply because um, one, we had a shared um, faith, and um, I think. Our understanding of the way that God works is that we all have individual callings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have community collective callings. And so what is meant for us can't be stolen or taken by an individual if God has entrusted us with those that work and those ideas. And so that, for me, was a part of my trust yeah. with Megan. Um And then I think really early on, we realized that we had very different strengths um, and very different um, ways of coming around ideas. So it never felt like, well, let me not share this because she may run with this. Instead, it felt very complimentary Mm -hmm. um, because um, we had uh, it was both useful and um, reassuring that we kind of came to ideas um, through different paths. Yeah. And I think a lot of 
our work in the community overlapped. So I was kind of in the, the justice space, um, in the legal arena, um, and Virginia was everywhere. But I think that you, it was apparent that we had shared values around equity um, and inclusion and disrupt, disrupting normative um, systems. And then we had the same ethos, um, which was really clear really early. Um, but for me, it was also that we we did have the same faith, so our foundation was the same. Um, and so there was just kind of this automatic trust built in for me. I want to talk about Rosa Rebellion in a second, the organization you founded together. But can you tell me a little bit about your day jobs <laughs> first? Sure. Um, so um, for the past three years, I've served as the director of the Center for Community Engagement and the Social Justice Institute, uh, which is housed at the University of Texas and a larger portfolio called the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement. Um, and I came to that work um, pretty much because of my um, sort of already investment in conversations around diversity, equity, um, the idea of systemic racism and how it was um, still a stronghold in the city that I was both born and raised in and had come back to um, to work. But I came to that work with a little um, different of a perspective or um, mindset rather than just sort of policy. It was also around storytelling, uh, which is sort of um, the way in which I see um, the use of this as a very powerful tool to disrupt systems and to elevate um, historically marginalized voices. And so um, in that work, what we do or my job is basically, if I distill it down into a few words, is to sort of leverage the resources of the university to address issues of equity and access in the community. Um, and so we focus on affordability, education equity, health and healthcare access, and cultural placekeeping. Um, and that part of that work is building trust with a community that um, the university has not always been a good neighbor to. Yeah, and I am a civil rights attorney. I do constitutional litigation for a statewide nonprofit that's actually been around since 1990, and it was founded by Jim Harrington, who is a community figure here in Austin and a pioneer. It's called Texas Civil Rights Project, and I focus specifically on criminal justice reform. So, um, and I've been on both sides of the criminal justice system. I was a prosecutor prior to that. Um, and so I kind of bring in uh, a lens that understands how the system works from the inside. And um, we really focus on impact litigation. So my job is to look for areas where constitutional rights might be violated and then see if there is a legal remedy or if there needs to be a public education piece or if we just need to do advocacy to raise awareness around um, what's happening in any given area of criminal justice. So that could be anywhere from um, the front end, which would be policing all the way to the back end, which is people who are imprisoned. Wow. Now I want to have y'all back just to, to talk about your day jobs as well. <laughs> um, that's good to know. Thank you. Um, and so why Rosie Rebellion? What? How did that come to be? What did y'all want that to become? Sure. So, you know, kind of going back to this idea of sort of a shared ethos, um, yeah. I think that both in our individual spheres, we were working around disrupting systems, but bringing about equity, um, 
really pushing back on a local level with the narrative that Austin is a liberal, progressive, (laughs) um, utopia, right? Inclusive um, space. And um, because of the work that we do, but also just because of our lived experience and understanding that um, that narrative um, does not hold weight for everyone who Mm. navigates this space, right? And that there's a danger to us focusing on just that conversation and not peeling back the layer to realize that we are actually also the most economically segregated city in the country of a city of this size, that we are simultaneously losing our black population and realizing because of the spaces that we navigate and particularly in leadership and spaces of decision-making, that the voices, uh, particularly of women of color, are oftentimes absent. Um, And because our work extends us beyond Austin, beyond Texas, we were seeing that as sort of a national trend, right, is that where are the voices of women of color um, who are disrupting these systems at a grassroots level Mm -hmm. but not being given the platform to do it in a way that can be sustainable and can be um, expanded. And so that was sort of the general conversation. And then we started kind of sharing ideas about (laughs) documentary filmmaking and um, different projects that we wanted to take on. And so uh, we actually really love telling the story of this, like, one day at a coffee (laughs) shop. Shout out to Figure Eight, because that's where it happened. Yes. Um, And we were like, hey, let's just get together and start sharing some ideas. Megan had an idea for a project. So I had been holding on to this name, Rose Rebellion, for about three or four years. Like, the name came to me, and it seemed to kind of encapsulate all the things that I felt I was um, doing. It was a, sort of this intersection of um, resistance, the, the story obviously inspired by Rosa Parks, um, this idea of history as a lens for doing this work. Um, and I just kind of put it on the shelf because what you said, it was like, I have a day job and um, I'm doing this work and I don't have time to think about other things. And I just shared the name with Megan, and I was like, in in general, these are the things I'm thinking about it could be. And she was like, that's dope. You need to do something. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, whatever. And she literally stole my laptop, went to (laughs) GoDaddy.com. And bought all the domains for me on her credit card. That's a good friend. That's a great friend. (laughs) Like, talk about, like, literal investment in your work and your ideas and having a cheerleader. And then it was more than that. It wasn't just, like, cool, now I've purchased you these domains. Then we started really kind of spitballing some ideas of the different things that could live underneath that umbrella. Yeah, and I had been working for years, a number of years, in my local church um, to build conversations around um, race and inclusion. We did politics, which was significantly harder mm-hmm. than race because, you know, with race, it's you have the same basis, right? Don't mm-hmm. be racist. But on the, when it comes to politics, it's a bit harder. Um, but we had really, you know, started to do it a little bit before there was like this boom um, where people started to say, we need to talk about these things. And so there was no model really mm-hmm. for us. And so we built the curriculum. Um, We fell on our face a lot um, and we learned a lot. But doing that work, coupled with being a prosecutor, coupled with being a person who was out in the community, started to kind of um, take its toll, right? Like you're um, navigating these systems that weren't built for you and you're trying to deconstruct them and at the same time change hearts and minds and, and raise awareness and kind of Uh, deal with people where they are with a level of grace um, that really is costly for you as a person. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I had this moment 
where there was um, Mike Brown's um, shooting had happened, and I was a prosecutor then, and then there was um, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, and I remember going to work the day after um, those shootings happened, the days after those shootings happened, and I remember, you know, being the only black person in the room and being really, really impacted Mm -hmm. and really struggling with the double consciousness of being a prosecutor working in a system and also how I was impacted. And um, I just started to realize that there are advocates and activists that are um, fighting these systems and it's really taking a toll on their mental wellness and they might not be taking stock of it. They don't have the resources to protect it. So I really wanted to do um, something around that. And um, my idea was to do these retreats all over the country that would be free of cost for um, activists and advocates um, to come and really just focus on their mental wellness and take a break and just rest. So out of that came Rebel and Rest, and that idea naturally aligned um, with Rosa Rebellion, and it became our first project. And so it kind of just evolved through the sharing of ideas and understanding where we aligned. Yeah, and I think, I don't remember when we came up with the name Rebel and Rest. It might have been the same day or a few <laughs> days later. But um, there was just this natural synergy about, you know, creating a space where these type of ideas could be birthed and be supported. Um, and what we realized, and so the sort of uh, mission tagline for Rosa Rebellion is a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. Um, and um, I think what's been really special for us is to realize that, um, you know, you ask the question around, you know, why do we do this when we both have, you know, very um, full lives, full lives <laughs> and, and jobs that demand a lot. Um, but I think oftentimes the best ideas are birthed when um, the impetus is because you don't see something that um, affirms who you are um, and that can truly carry the weight of some of the um, sort of labors and um, tensions that you have to navigate every single day. And for us, it felt like there was no space for um particularly women of color who are disrupting these right. systems um, to be supported in a way that that work doesn't have to um, sit in a silo and that work does um, deserves to be uh, affirmed and elevated. And that was sort of the same ethos around Rebel and Rust is that um, these are activists who are on the front lines every single day to advocate for their community, um, to not be shot down yeah. in the streets, to have health care and a health care system that truly um, um, values who they are, um, to be able to um, navigate an education system that um, affirms their humanity um, and to, you know, uplift communities that have historically been economically disenfranchised. And that takes a toll on you. And I think what we really wanted to do in this project was to elevate the fact that racialized trauma is A, a real thing, and B, having a huge um, physical, mental, spiritual impact on particularly black activist lives. And um, if we don't invest in that, um, in the idea of creating a space where we equip them to take care of their mental wellness, we're going to lose a generation of activists. And we've already seen that happen. Um, the, The death of uh, Erica Gardner, who's the daughter of Eric Gardner, um, who for three, four years was on the front lines of police um, activism and then had a heart attack at 29. Like those things, you know, 
are surely connected in some way. Um, and then just the um, the depression and sort of anxiety that is being stirred up in a generation of people that um, are being inundated by images of, you know, black bodies not being valued. Um, and so um, it's been a true sort of like privilege for us to create mm -hmm. that space. So what yeah. comes what comes first when you're creating this space? Is it funding? Is it you start telling stories <laughs> to get funding? Or, like, how do you get started? Yeah, you know, we are figuring it out. <laughs> but I'll say with Rebel Unrest, um, we had a great opportunity to premiere at South by Southwest. And that um, allowed us a larger audience. Um, but really, it was just about let's get out there and let's let's start raising awareness around the problem mm -hmm. um, and start to talk about this need and this hole and then see where the support comes. And um, at South By, we were able to work with Chloe, who's awesome um, and really, shout really great. Shout out to Chloe and shout out to Kelly, who is now on our board of advisors for Rosa Rebellion. Um, and we... Um, we're able to create kind of a mini retreat. And I think that that was important for a number of reasons. Um, we wanted to raise the conversation. We wanted to bring it to um, an audience that um, was uh, diverse, but we wanted to center blackness, which is what we did with that day. Um, and so, you know, it's really about seeking, getting your message out there, and then seeing where the opportunities take you and then seizing those opportunities. Because South By gave us a full day. And me and Virginia, at first, we were just like, could we just have like 30 minutes? We'll do a 30-minute <laughs> panel. And then they were like, oh, no, we think we can do a whole day. And we like danced on the phone and we were like going crazy. It was on mute. And, um, <laughs> and we were so excited. But then we hung up and realized like, we have to plan a full day yeah. of programming for, for South By. Yeah, so it was definitely daunting. Um, and, you know, even just, you know, to backtrack a little bit on your, your question, I think um, oftentimes when we, we're creating things that we feel can have a real impact in the community that can help address a problem, right, is solution-based, um, you oftentimes are kind of hunkered down in the conversation in a silo, either in your head or your yeah. partner's head, right, and you're like, well, we see the need. Does someone else see the need? And so for us, it was really important to um, create a process where we sort of assessed our community. So we did a survey on Instagram and on Twitter. We did a survey, you know, the through a mailing list yeah. for for activists, everything down to the the what this who the space was for. We went back and forth between is Rebel and Rest as a project for people of color at large, right? People who self-identify as people of color, or is it for black activists? And we felt just in this current uh, climate that it was important to create a space because while there's shared experiences, very nuanced historical experiences and contemporary policies that are impacting communities differently. And so we felt like it was important to create a space that um, connected to the black diaspora. And then from there, you know, literally, I think the <laughs> South By proposal was due like in three days. I was like, Megan, yeah. we should submit to South By. And she's like, it's due in three days. And I was like, and? Um, <laughs> I'm getting a sense that this is how a lot of things go for you, too. Yeah, Virginia is is the kind of process person, the spreadsheets, that kind of thing. And I'm an ideator and, and very big picture. So we work. Mm -hmm. But I basically do what she tells me. 
Wow. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I was like, yeah, we can do it. Three days. We know what we want to do. And I was like, and it doesn't hurt. And it was just good practice, I think. And I think that's oftentimes as we allow like our fear of how an idea is going to be perceived or because we don't have all the, the I's dotted and the T's crossed that we're like, we shouldn't pursue this because mm-hmm. the ultimate goal is this. And I don't see the full path yet, mm-hmm. yeah. which I think it's it's like. Business plans are important. Strategy is important. But I think there's also something to be said about um, um, being open to opportunities that don't always seem linear. Um, And so we submitted a South by proposal just being like, sure, okay, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And we actually ended up um, through um, a mutual connection. So Kelly Cross, who oversees programming, um, saw our um, proposal and connected us to Chloe and back to that fateful conference call we were like yeah so we just want to do like a panel where we invite some activists to talk about their experience and they're like we want to invest in more conversations around social justice and equity how about a full day and we're like wait come again huh? <laughs> really um, cool. and we like at that point we had no funding no speakers um no speakers confirmed it's just stressing me out um let's see what else wasn't in play but we knew that if we um, created the space and the platform we didn't and- have a logo finalized that was going Nope. The logo was not done yet. <laughs> was yep. like, um, so it was like all these things were... But you knew because it was important to you that people would show up, Other right? people like would show up. It. And it actually ended up, I think, working really well because it gave us, rather than just kind of working on this in sort of, you know, uh, with all the time and no sort mm-hmm. of strategic sort of end goal, it was like, okay, we're working towards our launch, which is going to be at South By. And... It also gave us such a great platform and a space that um, nurtured um, sort of the work and the conversations. And, I mean, everything just was, fell into place. It yeah. was kind of insane and incredible really to see. Amazing, But that, for us, I think also solidified that um, this was a needed space. There was so much affirmation. And people whose lived experience were connected to it. I mean, we had um, everything from how are we going to – we want to make sure that – this space is open to everyone. Well, we all know South by badges are twelve to sixteen hundred dollars. Like, yeah, that doesn't really align with sort of our value set, right? <laughs> and so South by was like, you know what? We'll allow you guys to keep to make your full day of programming open to the public. No badge needed. To okay, we want to make sure the speakers that we're inviting in because we want to invest in activists don't have to pay for lodging or um, food or, food or yeah. uh, airfare. And we had a friend donate their lake house to house all of our speakers. Like things like that where until you put yourself out there, you don't know what people are willing to invest in you. Yeah, and I think putting yourself out there is key. Virginia, you said something earlier about, you know, being scared to just leap. You know, there's a lot of like, well, is the website perfect? I mean, we did a radio interview with no website. Like people were calling in asking for our website. And we were like, um... Email, let's go to our Twitter, go to our Instagram, you know, because, and and the response was great. And you also don't know what you need. And there were times when, you know, we needed that encouragement. We needed to know that people would respond well. And you kind of have to just put yourself out there and don't worry about everything being perfect. If you have the perfect logo, if the website is perfect, if all of that, like, just if you have an idea and you feel in your bones and your gut that it is it's good and there's a calling and you're feeling a need and it can be impactful, then 
just start to talk about it and see where it takes you. When, um, so I tell stories, and part of my work, um, I work for some nonprofits and help them tell stories through their branding and things like that. And I kind of wanted to ask you a question with, with all humility. Like how, for the future of storytelling, do, do you guys want or envision, like, how do we all get together and tell stories? Or how do we, how do we tell stories that impact each other? Like how do people support you who aren't people of color? Or how mm-hmm. do people listen? Like who do you want to listen to your stories? Who do you want to help you pay for your stories? Like me as a storyteller, like what stories do I tell? Do y'all think very much about those stories and conversations? For sure. Anybody yeah. can pay for <laughs> the stories. But no, <laughs> um, so I think, you know, storytelling is very much at the crux of every um, project and sort of the areas, vertical areas of focus for Rosa Rebellion. So we want to impact um, four spaces. One, publications, um, just a little fact, um, about uh, 91% of op-eds are written by white males in this country, which is highly problematic if you think about the ways that narratives impact policy and practice, right? And so that's one of the spaces we want to disrupt production in terms of documentaries um, and then special projects like Rebel and Rest and then policy. And so all of those in our um, through our sort of uh, value set, um, are empowered through story. Mm-hmm. And um, while we've created a space that is for, in the sense that we are helping to elevate the experiences and stories of women of color, and then we want to empower women of color to own their own stories, because we know that th- those are being co-opted by folks, um, in that, that the audience is still broadly the full community, because without that cooperation or collective mentality, then we aren't going to make true disruption in those spaces. And so, you know, going back a little bit to the way that we felt um, fully supported in the process to our launch at South By, it was actually seeing mostly white women Mm -hmm. come around us and invest in us because Mm -hmm. they had seen the ways in which um, the systems that they navigate every day, right, were serving to um, marginalize or disenfranchise um, women of color, people of color, while um, in some ways uh, maintaining positions of power, right? And so for us, that was such a powerful reminder that uh, we need to think collectively because without that collective vision or that collective buy-in, um, the end result will still um, prove to be uh, disparate in the sense of who gets to partake in it and who gets to be on the receiving end of it. And so, um, you know, we've been kind of joking around around the idea that like some woke white women who came around us and truly became in some ways uh, our biggest champions and I think the same is um, to be said around storytelling is to think through um, when you have a platform or when you have a voice, um, are you serving to uplift the full community, right? Or are you serving to maintain um, systems of power that often you are used to oppress certain communities historically and um, in contemporary context? I also think, you know, when I think about how we center stories, um, and how we tell our stories. Um, we recently, with Black Girl and Ohm, just did, like, this live Twitter, um, like, fest, I guess is what you Twitter, would call it. Twitter shot. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, it was around, like, creating black culture. And one of the questions was, what's one thing that you can commit to in the next month um, that will help you to 
continue to create black culture and contribute. And the thing that I said was to be a less fearful storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, we're used to editing ourselves to make normative cultures like comfortable. And I think that when I think about allies or people who can come alongside us or um, people who will really, really support us, it's being okay, them being okay with being uncomfortable and not centering normative culture. And um, that can feel uneasy at first. And then us also learning um, and practicing really to model um, being fearless in the way that we tell our stories and being unapologetic. Um, And then I also think that people often ask me, um, because of what I've done with conversations, people often ask me, um, you know, how can I come alongside you and use my privilege? And I think South By was a really, really good example of that. You had MK from Hiatus Spa who, like, not only did she, like, donate things to us and donate massages to us that we could give to these activists, but she also... um, came the day, the whole day full day and actually immersed herself and learned a lot herself i believe um about what life is like for this uh for black activists and racialized trauma and all of that and then like live tweeted <laughs> and like you know like that's real support she got in there with us and then she also used her um access um to, to help share us with and i think um the other piece is you know um For me, a lot of my context comes from having a historical understanding of the spaces I navigate. And I think that's really important for all storytellers, because I think sometimes we oftentimes want to be reactive in our storytelling. Like, what's happening in 2019, right? Why uh, why am I responding to this? It's usually emotional, right? Or there's a connection. And I think um, we would all, it would serve us all really well if we had a better understanding of the context and historical narrative around those um, those stories. Because um, oftentimes we'll probably identify like, oh, so the impetus for that is a little different. Or mm. um, actually the people who should be accredited for that is a little different than what I thought it was. And so I would also encourage us as storytellers to also be, you know, in some ways sort of anthropologists and archaeologists and historians. Um and I think the the last piece about storytelling that I think is really critical, you know, to go alongside Megan's um, talk around being brave um, and courageous and bold in our storytelling um, is also to realize that um, we can't, you know, we often think of discomfort, right, as a, a warning sign to Um, revert back to what's comfortable, but that's oftentimes instead just a little bit of a inclination that you might be on the edge of growth or on the edge of um, shifting um, a space or shifting a process. And um, maybe a few months ago, I was asked by a certain publication if I would write for them. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea was that I was going to write for them around conversations of social justice and Mm -hmm. um, race within the context of faith. Um, At least that was my understanding. (laughs) If you're going to ask me to write, those are the things I'd be writing about. And so I put together an article that was focused on um, sort of the need for faith faith spaces to be... um, more implicitly 
um, connected to and nurturing conversations of social justice. And when I turned in my first draft, there was this huge sort of like pushback, like, oh, this is going to alarm our readers. They're not ready for this. And I'm like, what? Like, what's the trigger warning exactly? Yeah. Like, I mean, it was nothing, <clears throat> you know, super intense. I think I mentioned like, a few movements like the Dreamers and Black Lives yeah. Matter. And those were all the words that were highlighted like, in the uh, editing. Yeah. They're like, uh. mm. and um, you know, I was the response was even sort of based in this was like, you know, I think the Bible asks us to, you know, meet people where they are. And I was like, yeah, but there's also some biblical, mm. just theoretical things around like how do we move people outside of their spaces of comfort and if you guys are really trying to incite change then we need to challenge people and so I think for those of us that have spaces to really think about like where are we willing to go like are we willing to kind of spread um, or expand sort of the confines of that not to step outside the purpose or the mission or the vision of that space but if we are really committed to helping to shift ideas and encourage people to build understanding, uh, what's the work that we have to do as individuals, as storytellers, to make sure that we're truly willing to invest in that work? Um, so I think I already know, based on what y'all have said, what the answer to this will be. But what do you advise people to do who are maybe have a day job and want to get involved with like a, a social impact side hustle or want to make a change yeah. or want to tell stories on the side? Do you have – I know you've said – you said jump. You said oh. don't even look and just start jumping. But do you have any practical wait, wait, advice? Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's we a, made that sound like, like just yes. do it. No. no plans necessary. No, That's not the we case. did have some plans, and mm-hmm. we we were somewhat we were methodical, especially in the way that we engaged the community. I do but not brave. encourage people methodical, but brave. Right. I don't encourage people to go in and try to help a community they have not engaged. <laughs> I, um, you know. Really, it, it it was incremental. Give yourself time. Um, that seems like the opposite of what I just yeah. said. It was a year and a but half it's long not, process. Right, to but we, yeah. What I mean about jumping is just not letting fear stop you from from talking about your idea. But we certainly spent time. I mean, there were you know seven a.m. meetings. We were like, can we just get together for like an hour and a half before we go into the office? Um, there's the late nights um, and. So I would say, like, remember your why. There was mm-hmm. a time when we had so much going on. I think it's important to talk about, like, our our regular lives and how busy they were because, you know, I'm a full-time lawyer. I was a, I was a parent for a year. Um, that's a long story, but I was a parent for a year. Um, my husband ran for office. I mean, there was so much um, going on. I'm leading the thing at my church. Um And so allowing ourselves to just kind of incrementally make steps. So one of the things that Virginia did that I think was really key was in the beginning she created, like, this spreadsheet. This is probably, like, meeting two or three. Like, we're about to go buy the LLC. And she created this spreadsheet of things that needed to be done to get us to a certain point. And she just broke them down to bite-sized portions. And we just tried to check off, like, one thing you know, like a week, a week. or per yeah. meeting. Yeah. And so like, and we would celebrate it. Like we would turn it to green. So when we bought the LLC, I think like you put that in like completed and we were like, oh, it's completed, you know? So like <laughs> celebrate those small moments and mm-hmm. just, you know, allow your why to drive you through kind of the, the parts that are pretty mundane. And I think, you know, We've both had this experience, which was, I think, part of the reason why we um, aligned so well in the beginning of our friendship and the beginning of our partnership. Um, 
when I first got back from, so I went to college on the East Coast and came back to Austin and was sort of thrusted into adulthood. Um, and I got really ingrained um, in sort of community work pretty much within that first year of being back and was running a nonprofit organization in addition to my um, my job. And I got um, honestly burnt out um, probably about three, four years in where I felt like I was saying yes to everything because everything mm. felt important. Everything felt urgent. It was also the time in our city um, where um, – Black millennials were leaving by, like, the hundreds because they didn't feel like they had a place here, both culturally as well as opportunities to matriculate into leadership. And so I felt, and by no sense was I doing alone, but there was a group of us that felt very connected and invested in creating those spaces. And, you know, Megan has had moments similarly where we felt burnt out, where we felt exhausted. And I think what's really important, sort of the critical difference between um, walking in purpose and walking in something that you feel called to do is that it's not necessary to say yes to everything, right? It's yeah. necessary to be willing to um, participate in things that are connected to that purpose and to that why. And then be willing to elevate other people to fulfill those other needs. Like, I've gotten really good at, like, <laughs> I can't say yes, but there are 25 other people that can say yes, and otherwise they aren't going to get that space or that platform. And so sitting in that space where you're willing to bring other people into the conversation, other people into that sort of that privilege or that power. And um, I think for me, once you know that that is something that you're called to or you're fulfilling a need, it kind of, um, it pushes itself. It doesn't feel, I mean, there are exhausting times or times of anxiety, but it doesn't feel as heavy when you are having to um, sort of wade through um, doing things that you're just doing to do them because it might mm. seem like it's going to make, you know, something else happen or it yeah. seems In like a good opportunity. Like you just have to take, say yes to everything or yeah. be there yeah. for everything. Yeah. And I think also when with activism in particular, like um, social causes, right, It's I do think it's really important to learn um, the history and engage the community um, that you want to impact. And that might take a little bit of time mm -hmm. because what you think they need, they might not need. Or they might um, have tried before. Yeah. I feel like that's like you know, Or there might be yeah. wounds there. Um, you know, every chance I get, <laughs> I tell people to read about the 1928 plan in Austin because I think people think that the changing Austin is great and should be celebrated. But there's um, a history in Austin that has disenfranchised an entire group of people that's now being disenfranchised and displaced again. Um, and there's wounds there, right? And so I think that people, us, just us as individuals, we have a responsibility to engage in kind of deep dive on um, the history and what might be laying below the surface on the things that we want to impact. Because we could be well-intentioned, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, intent versus impact I think is important. Yeah. What's next for Rosa Rebellion? Uh, so we are sort of still riding the wave of um, South By, but really excited to um, begin to develop um, a full 
retreat for uh, Rebel and Rest, um, and our hope is to do it before the end of this year. And then the other areas that we are um, beginning to develop are around a cohort for women of color um, to be um, sort of trained and equipped to begin to penetrate the world of op-eds. Um, and yeah, I like that. I like that you're focusing yeah. on that because that stat is horrifying. I mean, and that seems like something super tangible, like it, in terms of audience. That exactly. Can... Um, and so that's our hope. And so um, we'll be sort of developing what that program's going to look like. Um, it'll be sort of an application process and a cohort of women that we really come around to support them and show them how to um, really elevate their voices in those spaces connected to social impact and policy change. Um, and then this is a question that I've asked everybody on the podcast. Um, how do you define success for yourself in particular? I mean, it can be specifically about Rosa Rebellion or it can be how you evaluate because you guys have so much going on. So how do you think about or define or measure success? Because I feel like a lot of times, especially in, in social justice or in social impact, like I get home at the end of the day and I'm like, well, nothing, nothing happened. You know, like nothing has progressed. <laughs> we are still at, at square one. So how do you think about that or keep yourself motivated? I think if one day I could be drinking... Um, coconut water in Barbados with Rihanna, then um, <laughs> that's your goal for sure. <laughs> that God will greet me one day with "Well done." Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, not really kidding. That would be awesome. Yeah, you really do um, want but it. Maybe you kind of not. <laughs> maybe not the not the the rubric in which I'll measure my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nice question. to have goals. It is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm I my entire like life. You know. Uh, my parents kind of modeled service for me and um, always kind of, they always had a job and like a million other things as well. Um, And so for me, it's just whether or not I think people are better because I was there. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes you can't measure that. Like sometimes, you know, you just got to hope that you planted some seeds that were good. And, um, you know, and then sometimes you get that text or that email or whatever that confirms that, you, yes, like you made an impact, whether that's in a conversation where someone just leaves encouraged mm-hmm. or, um, you know, you can help someone that day that's tangible or whether or not it's longer. Right. Like with something like um, the conversations that we've built at our church or what we're building with Rosa Rebellion. Um but, yeah, it's that and then it's that sweet spot. Like, I remember a moment during Rebel and Rest when we were in this, like, group therapy session that was amazing. It was a group therapy session with strangers, and it was awesome. <laughs> and I just remember, like, feeling like this is exactly where I'm supposed mm-hmm. to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. This is it. Um, and that's kind of intangible, but you know it when you feel it. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, particularly our um, generation, right, they're – are these really unhealthy um, measurements of success or measurements? Yeah. Followers. Followers, likes. likes, um, Even just um, sort of how we begin to sort of narrate our lives Mm -hmm. online, right? And this idea of like, oh, I haven't seen this person post in a while. They must not be doing anything with their lives. And it's like, actually, (laughs) maybe they They just are actually doing their lives. actually. Right? Instead and of a so, brand. And I think it can create this um, unhealthy anxiety, even in the the conversation of social impact, right? I mean, we've been in conversations with people who have, like, very highly visible um, platforms and voices. And sometimes, you know, you can get into that comparative zone. And similar to Megan, I, I kind of go back to sort of um, 
what was cultivated within my family ethos. Um, I always say that, like, our family business was um, being uh, civil servants and community servants. And what I've seen my grandparents and my parents model for me is this idea of, like, an integrated life where there wasn't any clear sort of delineation between their vocation, their understanding of faith and purpose, their family life. Like, there was this common thread and as long as that common thread was maintained in everything they were doing, um, it felt like they were walking in purpose. And so for me, it feels like if I'm walking in my purpose and I have the ability to um, impact spaces um, where that space is going to be left a little bit more open, a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more uh prepped for that next person to come in and feel um, more valued, more recognized, more seen, um, then I feel like um, moment by moment, there's this feeling of like, I'm where I am, I'm supposed to be, um, rather than sort of this idea of like, um, my life is going to be measured by um, whether or not Rosa Rebellion raises a million dollars. Although we are not opposed <laughs> to it, you can say we are not opposed to twenty nine forty. But instead, this idea, moment by moment, season by season, am I where I'm supposed to be, and is the space that I'm operating in, um, is it getting a little bit um, better for the next group of people? I love that. I think I might have a new definition for myself then. So thank you all for that. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I really learned a lot and was really inspired. So I appreciate you coming back. Thanks thank for you. Us. And not only thanks and congrats for on your season. Thank you. Yeah. Success. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having us, but also thank you for creating this type of space and allowing us to share our story. Yeah, of course. Thank y'all. Thanks everybody. Thanks so much to my guests, Virginia and Megan. To follow their work, you can go to rosarebellion.com or find them on Instagram and Twitter at Rosa Rebellion. We will put a link in the show notes. The Great Society team includes me, Constance Dykusen, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you to everyone at Founding Media for your support. Thanks for listening.